on a new journey. You know, explore God and that wonderful journey may be over, but the journey in pursuit of God never stops. And we're in a series called Parable. I wanted to welcome everybody at our Wheaton campus, everybody at Hobson, all those of you at 95th and Bolingbrook. I love that we are one church at four campuses together studying studying God's Word. And let me start by putting a picture here of lightning up. I don't know how you feel. I love lightning. I mean, the, the louder, the better, the brighter. When the house rumbles and shakes, I just, I love a good lightning storm. And I don't think I'm alone. There's other crazies in this world too. In fact, let's do a hand raise. Everybody at all our campus who love lightning, raise your hand. Yeah, see, there's a bunch of us. As much as we love lightning, I would argue that it's not nearly as much as Ben. Benjamin Franklin. Here's a picture of Ben. Benjamin Franklin loved a good lightning storm. He was mesmerized by the power of those bolts. And his mind went beyond mere aesthetic appreciation. He got onto the practical side. He said, I wonder if, you know, back then they didn't know what lightning was. But he said, I wonder if the stuff of lightning could be utilized in a practical way to bring benefit to life. And so he came up with the strategy of flying a kite in the middle of a thunderstorm. Great idea, With conductive wire coming down and with the key dangling on the end, with his son assisting. Actually, his son's role is not specified. It's lost in antiquity. I have a theory, though. I think uh, the the role was this. Uh, Ben said, son, you do understand I'm a founding father of this country, and this young nation can't afford to lose me, so fly the kites on them. (laughs) Just a theory. They flew the kite, and one part of the story you may not know is that they had what is a primitive battery. It was called a Leiden jar. And Franklin made it with glass on the outside and conductive metal wrapped around it and metal also on the inside with an electrode running down through the middle of it. First device capable of storing electricity. And as they brought it up to the key on the kite... Uh, literally, a spark would jump from the key to the electrode, and they just kept doing that, and that way they filled the jar, if you will, with electricity. He, he essentially said, I wonder if we could bottle up lightning, and I wonder if we did bottle up lightning, if we could discover a, a practical use for it. Friends, uh, do you think electricity is practically uh, beneficial. I started just thinking about all the ways, you know, they had no idea how much we would come to love and depend on electricity. Not only does it light our rooms, but we clean our clothes with it, we wash our dishes with it, we refrigerate our food, we start our cars, we cool our houses, we circulate our heat, we text our friends, we watch our shows, we read our news, we uh, amplify and send uh, our sermons. Uh, we are dependent upon electricity in every way. Uh, Franklin was right. He saw this thing, you know, this bolt out of heaven, and he said, I think this substance might have transforming 
realities to life. And he was so right, we can't imagine living without it. I want to make the comparison of electricity and grace. You know, this series is all about grace. It's called Parable Stories of Grace. And we're about to see through these stories, actually, it's a six-week series. We're going to study six parables of Jesus that all teach grace. Grace is a gift from heaven. Grace is not native to planet Earth. Grace is unusual, it's scandalous, it's shocking, and it's from the heart of God. And if we can find a way to bottle it up, I mean, not know about grace, but have grace, internalize grace, experience grace, it'll change everything, just as electricity, actually beyond what electricity changes. Grace will change the way you understand yourself, the way you see God, the way you view life, the way you do relationships. Grace transforms our lives in the most beautiful way, and we're about to see that. Some of you say, oh, I ain't grace. I know grace. Friends, uh, grace is so rich and deep, none of us know it fully. You know, it's not the prayer you say before your meal. Did you know that? Grace is not what the gymnast is. She's got grace. No. Grace is not the name of the kid. I mean, maybe it is the name of the kid, but what we're going at is this way of God. You see, in our world, everything flows out of deserving. If you, you get what you deserve, well, grace is undeserved favor. Grace is love for the unlovable. Grace, uh, maybe this is helpful, you know, it's spelled G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Jesus pays the bill, and we are flooded with God's riches pouring into our lives. Grace is astounding, and I'm so excited to study it with you. Let's get a whole bunch of grace in our lives. All right, to illustrate grace, I want to turn to a musical. Just for the record, I'm not a musical kind of guy. I I watch more football than musicals, all right? But I happen to like, love, Les Miserables. Les Mis is this musical, this story written by Victor Hugo that illustrates grace so profoundly. There's this character, his name is Jean Valjean, living back in France during the French Revolution. And Jean Valjean is a convict. He was thrown in jail for stealing bread, and then he tried to escape out of jail. His sentence was extended. He spent 19 years in jail. And finally, he is released. But his release into freedom doesn't go as famously as he had hoped. Turns out no one trusts an ex-con. He's trying desperately to find work, can't. Trying to find food, no one will give him a thing. Trying to find a, a room to stay in, he's homeless. It's going horribly for this man until he meets the pastor. I love when the, the minister is the hero of the story, you know. This priest, bishop, uh, says, Jean Valjean, come to my home. And this bishop brings him in and puts together a meal beyond his wildest dreams. He says, here, I got a bed for you to stay in. He's downing this food, the best food he's had in decades. And as he's enjoying the food, he can't help but notice the silverware. And he does a little calculation of its value. And the temptation proves to be too much for him to withstand. And that night, as he's sleeping in the 
house of this bishop. He sneaks out of bed in the middle of the night. He goes down and gathers up all the silverware, puts it in his bag, and sneaks out of the house, stealing from the pastor, biting the only hand that fed him. Terrible. And it doesn't get far before a police officer finds him to look kind of suspicious and checks in his bag, finds all this silverware and says, all right, buddy, where'd you get that? And he comes up in the panic of the moment with this story. Well, uh, the the bishop gave it to me. It was a gift. (laughs) And the police officer says, oh, sure it was. You're under arrest. Handcuffs, drags him to the bishop's house, go inside and the police officer throws this guilty criminal to the ground in front of the bishop standing there. Powerful moment. You know, Jean Valjean is despondent beyond imagine. He realizes his short taste of freedom is over. It's back to prison, probably for the rest of his life. And he's so ashamed as this gracious man looks upon him. And this only this guy was the only one who was good to him. And he's so wrong to the very guy. And he waits. The police officer says, uh, he says, you gave him all of this silverware. And to his shock, the next words change Jean Valjean's uh, life forever. These words come out of the bishop. He says, oh, that's right, I did. These, all of this silverware is a gift to him. He's my friend. In fact, I'm so glad you brought him back because he forgot the best part of my gift. And the bishop gets two silver candlesticks. And he says, Jean Valjean, you forgot the candlesticks. These are precious. Puts them into his bag, helps him to his feet, tells the police officer, take off the handcuffs. And, you know, embraces this man and sends him on his way with even more value. Jean Valjean is so confused. He's like, what was that? Well, I'll tell you what that was. That was grace. It's not normative. It's not found normally people who do bad things get bad consequences. You don't get more value. This is beyond anything that computes in this man's life because he's never seen it before. Grace, a dynamic so extraordinary, so beyond the ordinary. And Jean Valjean is forever marked by grace. That's the great thing about grace is when you receive it, it changes you. And sure enough, he keeps these silver candlesticks as a physical sign of grace. And he lives his whole life in a reaction to grace. He starts demonstrating grace to others. The rest of his life is devoted to caring and loving for people regardless of whether they're worthy of it. He's an agent of grace. And here's a scene that you probably don't know of. I call it a scene, actually. It's not in the movie or in the musical, but it's in Victor Hugo's novel, the original book. At the moment, at the deathbed of Jean Valjean, interestingly, he takes out the candlesticks. He knows this is the end. And he takes candles, and he places them in the candlestick. And as he's dying, he wants to do so in the light of, of, of grace, really. Uh, friends, the reason is that he understands even in death, his only hope is grace. 
you may think that he needed grace when he got out of jail, when he was an ex-con, but now he's had decades of doing good and serving others and loving people. He's no longer in desperate need of grace like he was, right? And he says, no, even in death, I need grace. In fact, the, the, the book says that he looked to heaven, closed his eyes, and faded away in the light of the candlesticks, dying in grace. Do you need grace when you die? You know, most people don't think you do. It's real interesting. If you were to ask people, uh, well, first of all, if you were to ask them, do you believe in an afterlife, heaven or hell? Do you know that still the Barna Research Group indicates that two-thirds of Americans still believe in heaven or hell. And then if you go on to say, which do you think you're going to? Pretty much they all say heaven. Uh, they, They would all say, well, I'm going to heaven, or you may hear, I think I'm going to heaven. Or or you may hear, I hope I'm going to heaven. And as you lean into that uncertainty and say, what gives you that hope? Do you know the number one answer you'll hear is, well, I hope that I'm good enough. I hope, they would say, I'm not trying to say I'm like perfect. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most. I've tried to live a good life, do what's right, treat people well. And they may even point to their religious side and say, in fact, uh, my parents actually baptized me when I was a kid, and I've gone to church off and on, not a real churchgoer, but some, and I have said prayers, and they believe that God grades on a curve. You know, that's kind of the thought, is that uh, God somehow maps all of humanity on a goodness scale, and clearly the bottom half is out of luck, but the better half has got to be okay. It's kind of like... Uh, as long as there are people worse than you, you feel good about it. Like, don't, don't look at me this way. I know you do this. On the expressway, when you're speeding, nobody's driving the speed limit, right? And you take comfort, and no one's driving the speed limit. I'm okay. In fact, as long as someone's going faster than me, I, I can go fast, right? So I just have to be a little slower than the fastest guy, and then he's the one who gets the ticket. I know you pretty well, don't I? Yeah, you do this all the time. We, they, people assume that God grades on a curve and that the good get in, you know, just be on the better half. What if you were talking with someone and this came up? What if they said, yeah, you know, boy, I sure hope when we die, you know, we end up in the good place. And you're like, wait, wait, uh, you're hoping you'll end up in the good place? Yeah. Why do you hope? What, what hope do you have? And then, then they say that. Well, I, I'm just hoping that I'm good enough, that I've done well enough. That God's pleased. And what if you were in that moment and go, you know what? I don't think that's how it works, actually. In fact, I don't think you earn a place in heaven. I think it's a gift of grace that you don't deserve. And they were like, no, 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 I'm pretty sure the Bible says you got to earn it. And you're like, no, I'm pretty sure the Bible doesn't say it. And all of a sudden they turn to you and say, oh, really? Well, then show me in the Bible where it says that it's not something you earn, but rather a free gift that you don't deserve. Um, what would you do in that moment? Friends, uh, you got to know, you got to have a plan because this is a moment with eternity hanging in the balance. Do you see the significance? Uh, if, if you have significant conversations with those you love, this topic of eternity and how to ensure you end up in the right place is going to come up. And do you have answers? I have found a parable to be so helpful in this moment. And you may have other passages of Scripture that work better, use them. But if you're lacking 
a real solid way to go. Consider this parable. It's out of Luke 18, and I love it. Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Isn't that interesting? This is the context. Jesus looks and he says, these people are confident of their own righteousness, meaning they think they're good enough. And Jesus realized, oh boy, we got a problem here. They don't get it. They don't understand how it really works. And how does Jesus correct the problem? With a parable, with a story. Christ understands that stories are powerful. Uh, This series is six parables, you know, that all convey grace. And uh, I find it curious that Jesus so frequently turns to parables, to stories. Some people think that that's childish. You know, there are some who are more scholarly, more theologically minded, and they, I've actually been criticized myself uh, as a preacher for utilizing too many stories. I've had folks say, oh, you're one of those storytelling preachers. How cute, you know? And admittedly, stories are a little entertaining, and stories are easy to connect with. But just because they're easy doesn't mean they're insignificant. Christ understood the power of story. When you got a concept like grace that you don't just want to explain, you want to encounter grace, you want to experience it, you want to be wrecked by it. Sometimes the best avenue of driving it into the heart of people is through story. And so Jesus turned to story, to parable, again and again and again in his ministry. And that's what he does here to these people who need to understand. Jesus told this parable, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Two guys went up to pray. I, uh, I love to visually demonstrate, and so when I work through this, I have Luke 18 open in my Bible, and then I grab a piece of paper and do a very, uh, I'm, I'm an artist, and so I, get, I, I go for it, and I really, you know, here, here's my art. Uh, two guys. Uh, I'll draw a little hill because it says they went up the temple back then and Jesus' day was up on a hill. And two guys went up to the temple to pray. And then I said one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And then I'll kind of just clarify that a Pharisee was like a professional religious guy. Pharisees were known for pouring over study of Scripture, for being meticulous about following all the laws. They were very, very moral people. And then I'll explain. The tax collector, the exact opposite. They were known to be scoundrels. I mean, we're not particularly fond of IRS agents today, but back in that day, they were known to be corrupt. They all worked for the evil Roman Empire, and they took advantage of this conquered people And as a result, they were corrupt and despised. So Jesus is like two ends of the spectrum. The most religious and moral person and the most unreligious and most corrupt person. And yet, they're both displaying a type of connection with God. They both went up to the temple to pray, right? But very different in what is going on inside of them. Let's take a look inside of them. Let's take a look inside of the Pharisee. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. You know, he's doing the comparison game, just like I talked. You know, we just make sure others are driving faster than us and, you know, get on the bell curve in the right direction. That's what he's doing. He's looking at others going, I'm not perfect morally, but when I realize how wicked some people are, I celebrate that I'm not like them. I'm better than them. And on my little drawing, I'll write the words, relative morality, meaning relatively speaking, I'm fairly moral. This guy's confidence before God is that relatively speaking, compared to most, he's moral. Uh, But that's not it. That's not all. Uh, Look at what he says next in verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Friends, these are impressive religious disciplines here. Fasting. I mean, that's foregoing food as an act of devotion to God and letting your hunger pains remind you of your need for the Lord and drive you to prayer. I mean, you got to be really spiritually devoted to get into this discipline of fasting. And here's another really big one. I give a tenth of all I get. Tithing. Scripture commands God's people to live on 90% and to take the first 10% of what they make and give it as worship to God and devoting it to God's eternal cause. And this dude, wow, I mean, he is doing religious rituals of the highest order. In fact, on my little drawing, I write religious ritual. Where is his confidence before God? I'm relatively moral, and I've done a lot of religious rituals. And then I make an observation at this point. I, you know, I'll be like, friend, you know, remember what you said? You said to me that uh, you're not perfect, but you try to do what's right, and you hope it's good enough. And remember what you said? You know, your parents baptized you, and you've gone to church some, and you've said prayers. Uh, I just want to point out that you're kind of Uh, share the confidence of this guy. And they're like, yeah, this guy's very different. I said, in fact, let's let's take a look. And, And I then turn to verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He couldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, catch these details. He, he stands at a distance. He doesn't even feel good about fully climbing the hill because he knows he's in the presence of God. In fact, he can't look up because he knows God is so good and holy and I am so sinful. He's feeling the weight of his guilt right now. He's feeling remorse. He, he's acknowledging his sin. He's, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I am a sinner. He's just saying it to God. And he's repenting. In fact, beating of the breast, this is a physical sign of repentance. It's saying, oh, Lord, I hate what I've done. I'm seeing the despicable nature of my ways. And I'm grieving the way I have lived and sinned against you. Repentance is saying, I don't want to live that way anymore. But more than just repentance, he's also trusting in God's mercy. Rather than him saying, Lord, I promise I'll clean my ways. I promise I'll do enough good things that you'll feel better about me. Instead, he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
He's trusting not in his own ability to clean up his act, but rather he's trusting in God's mercy, God's forgiveness and grace. And so on the little illustration, I write, repent and trust. These are the two things I see here. Repenting of your sin, saying, Lord, I, I'll just own it. I am. I've, I've violated your instructions. I've done what you said not to do. I've not done what you said to do. And I repent. And then trust in God's mercy and grace. Would you please forgive me? Would you have mercy on me, a sinner? And I, and I say, it's interesting. Both of these guys are religious in that they're seeking God, going up the hill to pray. But their responses are very different. One of them, self-righteous, counting on his own deeds. The other one, God-righteous, or counting on God's grace. And I said, maybe God is like accepting of both routes. And he's like, yeah, maybe. Well, let's read on. Verse 14, Jesus continues. I tell you that this man, that's the tax collector, the one begging for mercy. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. To be justified before God is to be right with God, to be forgiven, to be in a reconciled relationship with God. And both of them are not right with God. He says, this man and not the other went home justified before God. At this point, I, in my little drawing, draw a big X through this side. Jesus says, this doesn't work. And I make a big circle around this side. And Jesus says, only this guy went home justified before God. And this is a tense, sobering moment because the very path they thought Christianity taught, they're now hearing through the words of Jesus Christ, doesn't work. And that the only way is here. And I add at this point that the reason this trust and repent strategy works is because of the cross of Christ. You see, Jesus died on the cross paying a penalty. That was punishment. And he wasn't being punished for anything he'd done wrong. He was being punished for me and for you. He was the substitute facing the death penalty on our behalf. And with justice served through the execution of Jesus Christ, all we got to do is repent of our sin and say, I am so sorry. Would you forgive me? And trust in his grace. Lord, what you did on the cross, apply that to my life. You are my savior. I need you. And in a moment, I said, you get this reconciliation with God as a gift. And I point that out. I go, this epiphany that you've had, this discovery, it can be fixed now, right now. All you got to do is say, well, you know what? I was wrong. I abandoned my self-righteousness, self-confident plan. And Lord, I'm turning to you asking for your grace. And uh, if you do this, one of the great joys you can have is your friend, your family member. Maybe you're talking to someone on their deathbed who's really wrestling with these eternal matters. In that moment, you can say, you want to pray right now and abandon this plan and trust this one? And one of the greatest joys a human being can have is bowing in prayer with someone and guiding them in a simple prayer of repenting of their sin and trusting in the forgiveness and grace that comes through Christ. You know, I uh, want to tell you about a song, popular song. 
Really popular song. In fact, I, I, I'm underestimating it as I say that. The most popular song in the history of planet Earth. Do you know what it is? Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace has been recorded more than any song, sung more than any song, enjoyed. It's over 200 years old, and it's still gaining popularity today. It's crazy. Do you know the origin of Amazing Grace? It was written by a slave trader. John Newton, the author, lived back in the days of slave trading and captained a ship where he packed Africans in as cargo sailed them over the oceans, and sold them as a possession. Horrific. Did it for eight years. Finally got out of that business, felt racked with shame at what he had participated in, and discovered Christianity, this offer of forgiveness and grace through the cross of Christ. And he became a Christian, and in doing so, All of his sin was washed away. Uh, God adopted this broken man into his family, and God loved on John Newton. And he was so blown away by this grace that it just flowed out of him. He was amazed. He called amazing grace, he wrote. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's Wretch, that's a strong word, then and now. He said, but that's who I am. And he went on and said, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. You know, we understand a slave trader uh, becoming a Christian, needing amazing grace. That is his only hope. But what about this? What about 40-some years later when he's been a pastor for four decades, devoting himself to God, living with increased morality way beyond most people? What about him on his deathbed at 82 years old? I mean, back when he wrote the song as a newer Christian, he really needed grace. But does he still, 40 years after living a life devoted to God and obeying, relatively speaking, his rules, does he still need grace as he dies? It's interesting. His good friend, William J., came to him when he was on his deathbed seeking to say goodbye and love on his friend one last time. And as uh, he looked at John Newton, he realized, oh, this isn't good. He's fading fast. And they were discussing his uh, brain, which was failing him, his memories, which he was losing. And all of a sudden, John Newton said this, but I, I do remember two things. He said, the first is that I am a great sinner. And the second is that Christ is a great Savior. And in death, the two things he knew, even though he had cleaned up his act, still his righteousness compared to the glory of Jesus, he was still a sinner in need of grace. That was never going to change. And he died in the light. Just like Jean Valjean, his death was faced in the light of grace. Friends, are you ready? It dawns on me that you may be like, you know, you were kind of explaining that, how we should help others understand, and you're like, I think I was the guy kind of hoping I was good enough when I died, or the gal kind of hoping I was good enough. Wow, Jesus really said that? Yeah. 
And so this moment, this closing prayer, may be your chance to turn to God and say, boy, was I off. Lord, that whole uh, Pharisee route that I was taking, I'm letting go entirely and turning instead to that tax collector route of saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As you pray to the Lord in this closing prayer, you can find his forgiveness and reconciliation with your maker in a moment. And so I may be the one praying out loud, but know this, God is far more interested in what you're saying silently as you do business with your God. So let's bow our heads, shall we? Lord, uh, forgive us. Forgive us for ever thinking that we could do enough to impress you and earn a place in your home. We're done with that plan. We're, we're, We're kidding ourselves to think that way. And instead, we shift to what that guy, the old have mercy on me, a sinner plan. (laughs) Jesus, would you save the day? We admit it. We have done things you told us not to. We've not done things you told us to. We are sinners too. And our only hope is your mercy, your grace. Jesus, would you take what you did on the cross and apply it to our lives, wash away our guilt and sin, And forgive us and bring us to God. Please, God, we want to be right with you both now and then after we die for eternity. Hear our cry for grace. Amen. Let's stand together if you're able. Let's sing this last song. The Lord 
And mm-hmm. 